I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's only one word that matters in the business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Hello and welcome to Series 2 of the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty and we're back with more stories from the entrepreneurial melting pot, the world's most exciting business people in conversation and in the spirit of the Voom competition, plenty of tips and advice to help you start up and grow. Later on, we'll be speaking to Toby McCartney, this year's Voom winner, who'll be sharing thoughts on his competition success and explaining how his company, McReba are planning to revolutionise roads across the UK. But first, in the studio today, I am so excited to welcome an entrepreneur who is constantly named amongst the most influential and most powerful business people in the UK. A mogul in the retail sector, hers is a story of empowerment. Empowerment in the boardroom and also in the bedroom, with a business that's grown from the back streets to over 140 prime locations across the UK. Charged with single-handedly bringing sex to the British high street and changing the face of an industry and the public's perceptions along with it, actually. I am, of course, talking about Jacqueline Gold, CEO and driving force behind Anne Summers, the lingerie and sex toys chain. It's really good to have you here, Jacqueline. Welcome. <laughs> Hello, Nikki, and thank you for that amazing introduction. It's a pleasure. It's all accurate too. So earlier this year, you were awarded a CBE for services to entrepreneurship and services to women in business. That is a huge accolade and one that hints at just how important your success at Anne Summers has been. So to start the show with what we'd call an open question, I suppose, what would you say is the most enjoyable aspect of your job today? Um, I just, I love the variety. I love the fact that I'm doing something really different, that I'm, you know, changing social attitudes. I mean, just the change in culture over the last 35 years and to have played a massive part in that is something, you know, that really obviously gives me a buzz. And then as you mentioned about the CBE, you know, that for me was just the most amazing highlight of my career and to be recognised for the things that I feel most passionate about you know, is is just something very, very special. I've always wondered, because I'm never going to get anything with, you know, an award medal attached, I am pretty sure. But I've always imagined that it's not just pride in yourself, it's also pride for the people who you work with, maybe for a parent who's taught you things. So did you sort of accept it on behalf of a lot of other people too in your heart? Oh, completely. You know, this isn't a journey that I've gone on on my own. It's been a very passionate journey and I'm very proud of the people that I work with. My colleagues are as passionate about the brand and the business as I am. And I think culture fit, when you're recruiting people for your business, choosing that right culture fit is really key because, you know, people are the, the life and blood of the business and the brand. So what does culture fit mean? It's about sharing the same values. You know, we often hear business people talk about it's more important to have somebody with the right attitude than necessarily the skills because you can teach the skills. And that is very, very true. And I think for me, you've got to share the same vision and we've all got to be striving in the right direction. So when I interview people, I'm looking for people that tick the boxes that are important to me, which are, you know, the pride, passion, respect, an inclusive way of working. I want them to be daring. I want them to be experts. I want them to have an entrepreneurial spirit. So I think it's about, you know, ticking those various boxes. So made in your image, in a sense, by those descriptions, I'd say. Well, I guess so. <laughs> that wasn't the plan, but I, I, I guess. Uh, we'll come to the aspect of characters and how you choose people and entrepreneurship in a little while. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, 
you now have a chain of over 140 stores. You've got a thriving online business and a team of, I think, isn't it over 7,000 party planners? And they're all working and selling your products in homes across the UK. And it's about 4,000 parties a week. Yes, that's right. That's extraordinary. So we'll come to that in a moment. If we were to go back to when you first encountered Anne Summers, as it was, when you joined, I think, on work experience, and it was your father's two, was it two outlets? Yes, he had two stores, Mm. um, both sex shops. And I only worked at the business. I I went to work at the business for work experience. You know, it wasn't female friendly. I had no intention of staying. Um, And I was just invited to a a sort of a Tupperware style party just by chance. Not not a sex Tupperware party? No, no, no. no. An actual Tupperware? Just a normal party. But these women at this party knew that I worked at Anne Summers and we're obviously thinking we want to be able to buy sex toys. We want to be able to spice up our marriages but we don't want to go to a sex shop to do that. They were obviously quite understandably intimidated by that. And, you know, in those days, you couldn't buy sexy underwear in the high street like you can today. I mean, we take it for granted. You know, the younger generation has no idea of the challenges, you know, that I faced in those early days. I mean, I was arrested twice. Um, I was received a bullet through the post. You know, it was an ongoing journey of challenges. But just weirdly, the more that was thrown at me, the more... Because I really believed, you know, you mentioned in your opening that, you know, I've um, empowered women in the bedroom. And when you think it was, that's all it was. I just wanted to empower women in the bedroom. Mm. To look back 35 years ago and think, wow, you know, you, you do have to pinch yourself at how far you've come. Were women disempowered in the bedroom, do you think? Um, I think to a large degree they were, because I think that the fact you could only buy sex toys and sexy underwear somewhere that only men would want to go, prevented women from sort of, you know, even those that wanted to, in in taking control. So describe the Anne Summers two shops that were your father's. What were they like? What was in them? Because, for example, we're in London right now talking to each other. I can walk into Soho and other parts of London and I can, with all the freedom in the world, without any embarrassment, walk into one of your shops. I can walk into various other shops and they are female friendly you're describing a time when a woman wouldn't walk in there so if I walked through the door did it have those those plastic things down them you know those, <laughs> that plastic shredded curtain was it a bit like that I mean you've got to remember Anne Summers even then was the acceptable face of the sex industry was it yes yeah, so our two stores were the better stores the better choice of, of a bad bunch mm. and this was just shortly before they introduced licensing which is why I'm sure you can now go into stores and and feel more comfortable but they were clinical. You know, I sort of described them jokingly as the raincoat brigade because that was the type of clientele that you'd have in there. You know, disengaged. The product was very much aimed at men. The quality of underwear was sort of cheap nylon with harsh lace edging. And it was very much about what a man thought was sexy and not what necessarily made a woman feel sexy. So I actually closed all the stores that we had, focused totally on the party plan and making that completely female friendly. And that actually then became the induction to the brand. People, you know, when I started to open stores, women would go to the parties and then they were comfortable then to go into the stores. And of course, we've gone from sort of a 10% female profile in the early days to now 80%. We've done a completely full circle. So we've gone from Raincoat Brigade to female institution, practically. Isn't that fantastic? So why was it called Anne Summers? Who was Anne Summers? Well, the first store was opened by a man called Kim Waterfield, better known as Dandy Kim. He was a real man about town character. He dated Princess Margaret. He was engaged to Diana Dawes. You can imagine the type of lifestyle he had. He came up with the idea to open the first sex shop actually in Marble Arch, employed a girl called Denise Goodwin, who, not surprisingly, he also had an affair with. But she later changed her name by Depot to Anne Summers so that the store had a figurehead. However, the store uh, did actually go into financial difficulty within less than a year, even though it was hugely popular on the first day of opening. Um, And we got involved because he owed us money and we bought the store and the name for just £10,000. Can I ask you, is it really middle class for me to ask you how much it's worth now? Well, it's, it's, it, of course you can ask. I mean, it's what somebody will pay. I mean, the you know, our turnover is 150 million. 
And my first year's turnover was 83,000. So, you know, that's a pretty great journey to be on. But it's the fact that we have 99% brand recognition equivalent to Nike, I think, says this isn't going to go cheap by any means. Let me take you back to that Tupperware party. So you're at a Tupperware party. And for anybody listening, perhaps somewhere else in the world who doesn't know what Tupperware is, it's plastic containers for storage. And it made a little burp sound when you put the lid on. And it was something that rather like, I suppose in some ways like Avon, it gave women something that they could do in times that they weren't looking after their children. It, it, it allowed women to make some money as well and gather each other around. Yeah. Am I right? Well, it's a form of direct selling, better known in the industry as party plan. And it's where women get together in the hostess's house, mm. invite their friends round and have a social evening. And of course, years and years ago, when you talk about Tupperware, which is, you know, probably the most famous of those types of party plan businesses, you know, it sort of has that sort of housekeeping, old fashioned feel about it. And I think what we did was we came along, we completely revolutionised that by bringing Ann Summer's sexy underwear and transformed it from being old fashioned to suddenly a really cool thing to do with a great entertainment value and of course if any of your listeners have seen the recent Brief Encounters series which uh, really shows you exactly how it was and it's so true to to how it was and when you see that moment when Penelope Wilton is dressed in our royal pink nighty standing (laughs) at the door telling the officer that actually women are being empowered and we're in the throes of a sexual revolution it really was like that. What's changed since that first party do you think? Well, attitudes have changed completely. And when I think about the amazing laundry that we're producing today, you know, we have partnerships with ASOS, House of Fraser, Shop Direct, Simply B, you know, and that wholesale part of our business is growing all the time. Mm. You know, we're being told by Shop Direct we're the largest lingerie brand. ASOS have, you know, quadrupled their order. So the appetite for our product has grown enormously. And I think that's that's partly because the young woman of today is very savvy. You know, she's very confident, both in the bedroom and she knows what she wants from her career. And I think also the fact that we're very driven by that younger audience, that sort of 18 to 24-year-old audience. They are the ones that are driving change in retail. But they also want fashion-led product, and that's what we're doing. We're producing, you know, very fashion-led product that is worn to be seen. And I think that we've really created a niche in the market there. But I think that just shows the personality of the people that are buying product and how, you know, the confidence and the social attitudes have changed over the years. When people think about uh, a sex toy, I suppose back then all they would have thought about would be, I imagine, a vibrator, a dildo, something that represented a penis to to a woman. How has all that changed? Or am I wrong? Was it no, not like No, no, Nikki, you're absolutely right. And it's changed remarkably. So, yes, it was either phallic shape yeah. or it was like a hard white plastic that looked like, you know, some sort of column with a <laughs> with a shaped end. It was as limited as that. Whereas what we have today, you know, what Anne Summers has done is it's all about innovation. It's about, you know, our latest range, for example, the Morgasm Move is all about the contour of the woman's body. It's about using silicon materials that are comfortable and, you know, bright colours that women want to buy. Um, and, and, you know, it's pretty. It's, um, so what is the Morgasm Move then? Well, the Morgasm is groundbreaking. It has groundbreaking technology that taps into a frequency that no other vibrator taps into. And I'm, I'm not saying that as a joke. I'm saying that that is the that's, that's the, the reality, research. Yeah, absolutely. You know the uh, the research and an effort that's gone into producing that type of product. So we will, we usually do about four in the range. So you'll have one that is the sort of iconic rabbit, which mm-hmm. you know we're very famous for. Um, the, you'll then have one that is just a simple. Um, shaft-like vibrator. We then do um, the clit stim, which Mm -hmm. is for external and, again, is shaped appropriately. And we'll also do a ring for your partner. So in the early days, I remember at my very first party, one of the guests passing the vibrator, and I know it's hard to to do this over a podcast, but passing the vibrator like it's jumping out of her hands, <laughs> giggling and sort of with excitement and sort of uh, curious and, and a bit scared at the same time. Whereas today, our customers go into store, they want to know what speeds they come in, what features they have, right. what they're made of, what the colour choice is. So, you know, customers are 
are pretty sophisticated in their knowledge. There is a much bigger area to sex and young people now that frightens a lot of our generation, perhaps, and that is that kids are sexting each other, uh, boys are watching pornography, they see a certain type of woman's body that then makes women feel they've got to do certain things. In any way, do you feel a social responsibility towards making the next generation understand what a healthy sex life is? Oh, completely. I mean, we take our role as a, as a responsible retailer very seriously. I mean, I have a seven-year-old daughter, so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of anticipating those same concerns. And I, I think it's just about acting responsibly. I'm get involved in a lot of charity work as well to get that message out there. And I think it's about the balance between protecting our children, giving out the right positive messages. And, you know, what I did was took sex, which was sort of swept under the carpet and not talked about, into a more positive domain where we could talk about it in a healthy and positive way. Um, and, I, and I think the dangers that probably all parents uh, feel, which, you know, I'm one of those, is more about what goes on on the internet, which you have no control over. And I think it's about making sure that we protect our children, but at the same time, you know, recognise that there are responsible retailers out there like ourselves that, uh, you know, need, need to be um, recognised and encouraged at the same time. Is it true that when you first pitched your new ideas, you had to pitch it to an all-male board? And did it, they turn you down? <laughs> it is true. And actually, there was one man, and he's, he's dead now, so I can say his name, but there was one, one director at the board that actually stood up, threw his pen on the table and said, well, this isn't going to work, is it? Women aren't even interested in sex. <gasps> and I was 21 years old at the time, and I thought, oh, my God, this obviously says a lot more about your sex life than it does about my idea. But I'm not actually going to say that because I need the money. <laughs> Uh, often on this show, the entrepreneurs we feature are founders. They've started companies themselves. They don't have a board to answer to and they make their own rules for the most part. It's really important, however, to remember that it's possible to be entrepreneurial within an existing framework at your job and at a company you work at. So your story of having to challenge and to push the board is a pretty good example of that, isn't it? I mean, God. Completely. I mean, and it wasn't just the board I had to deal with, but it was preconceived ideas at, at the time of what I was trying to achieve. You mm. know, I remember years ago trying to organise a conference for my workforce at, um, uh, I know it was in Coventry and I forget what they what it was called now, but they took the order and, you know, it was all wonderful. And then a couple of weeks before we were due to um, hold our conference, they obviously figured out who we were and, uh, you know, told us that they cancelled the order and we couldn't have our conference there. I mean, some of those things were, were massively difficult. And also, you know, I remember getting in a taxi and being dropped off outside my head office and being told, oh, you're not going in there, are you? Well, yes, I am. Well, you know what goes on in there? <laughs> well, no, I don't. Why? <laughs> what does go on there? So, you know, it was just this... This incredible imagination. Mm. But over time, that's obviously changed and, and uh, you know. Well, what advice would you give to somebody listening to this who's in a similar position in that they've got to convince a board, they've got an idea, but they need to challenge the norm? Do you have any advice for people? Well, you know, I think there's a number of things. You know, you've got to come up with an innovative idea. So when you go to that board or when you go, it could be the bank manager you're going to, to to borrow money or whatever it is you're doing. You know, we can no longer be in a, in a world where we imitate. We have to innovate. We have to set ourselves apart from the competition. And normally that's what entrepreneurs do because they see a gap in the market, which is what I did. Mm. I think that you mustn't have any limit to your ambitions Everything I do, even today, I think about the end result. I think about the blue sky end result and I work back and unpeel the barriers from there. And, you know, going to a board is probably just another one of those potential barriers. You know, one thing I keep saying to people, if there was one piece of advice I could give anybody, it would be about not letting perceived barriers, you know, stand in the way of your progress and your ultimate success. So what about getting to know your customers? That's surely very important, isn't it? I think that's one of the most exciting things for me about the way business has evolved because where 
our customers are the ones that are driving change. And it's the younger generation that are doing that. You know, when we look at heritage businesses like Game, like HMV, like Woolworths, BHS more recently, you know, it's because they've not kept up. Mm. They've gone to the wall because they've become complacent. They've not kept up with what the customer really wants. And the customer of today, they want speed, they want convenience, they want a shopping experience and they want that experience to be as easy and flexible as possible. I was quite surprised one day. It's just, sorry, sprung to my mind. I went into an Ann Summers and a man was serving me. Now that's interesting. I'd never, I thought it would all be staffed by women. Well, in our stores, it's fair to say that most of our um, retail colleagues are women because Mm. You know, that's the type of person we attract and they love the brand. And But, uh, you know, we want guys too. So if guys come in and they've got the same values and, mm. and we feel that they're going to serve our, our customers well. And by the way, we have a great rating for customer service, you know, far exceeding big brands like Apple. You know, we have great mystery shopping rating. So, um, you know, serving our customers in a way that make them feel comfortable is, is critical. But you know, the customer, you know, years ago, we, we talked about the customer as, as king. Uh, but today, you know, that couldn't be closer to the truth. And so for me, I think because I didn't have any business experience and I didn't have any experience in retail, I just had an idea. What I thought was a great disadvantage for me at the time actually turned out to be one of my my main benefits because it actually forced me to rely on feedback from the customer's and I've always done that throughout my career. And of course, now it's pretty much with, with the main high street stores, it's pretty mainstream to do that. And of course, we're thinking about everything from, you know, if you think about iBeacons, for example, that, that John Lewis do, you know, you can walk past the John Lewis store, it knows you're walking past and it sends you a message about the special offer that they've got on that no, day. No, but that's just going to make me spend more money. Mm, well, that is the idea. <laughs> Do you think people today rely too much on data and social media and not enough on that face-to-face shopping experience that you've already described? Well, both are equally important. You know, first of all, the data is so powerful, what you can learn and how you can, you know, drive your your business forward, particularly when you're, you know, if you've got a website. But even in store, because the key for successful trading in, in store is to link almost your online customer with the retail experience. So it's bringing the two together. So, for example, if your customer online has viewed a product, say, five times, if they then go into your store, you could send them a text saying this product is... 20% off today and it could be the one that they've looked at five times mm. so you know that is the sophistication that we're moving towards however I absolutely take on board your point about face-to-face and and one of the things that we do regularly you know our focus group so you know if we're setting up something new whether it be uh, click and collect that we did a number of years ago or it could be the rabbit dating app that we've done recently to have um, anecdotal feedback and honest feedback from you know current customers customers that aren't interested but could be interested you know that's crucial absolutely crucial your first store you opened am i right 1993 under is that right for you gosh is it around about then it was around about that time so that must have been quite frightening at that time because did you have any did you have any data, as we're talking about data, did you have any market research that guaranteed that this would work? Or was well, it just your gut, Jacqueline? Well, when, you know, we were running a very successful party plan business that was growing at 20% a year. That was the data, mm. if you like. OK, it wasn't sophisticated like it is today, but then you weren't up against the same challenges and the same retail landscape that we have now. So we were already running a unique business in, in party plan. So it just made perfect sense that we should open stores, you know, as another part of that experience, particularly so that men and couples could go into the stores as well. Um, I've, I've had a lot more frightening things happen to me during my career that, than worrying about that first that first store it was exciting. You know, I think anything, it was a milestone. What were the frightening things? Earlier on, you mentioned that you had been arrested twice. What were you arrested for? I was about 25 years old and I I had a stand at the Women's World Exhibition in Bristol. And, um, you know, it was was a great event. You know, it was an opportunity to show my lingerie and I had a little discreet area at the back of the stand with toys in it and I was handing out catalogues. 
And yes, I was arrested and cautioned that if I didn't take the stand down, that I would be charged. With what? Running a sex shop without a licence. But I wasn't selling anything. So I knew that, you know, to be honest, it was just another layer of that sort of bullying, or it felt like bullying to me. Uh, it was before the word bullying became a sort catch of... Catchword. Yeah, a catchword. But, you know, I, I think if you believe in what you're doing and you know it's right in your heart... You know, I wanted to empower women in the bedroom, so I wasn't going to let anybody stop me. Do you know where that absolute conviction that women needed to be empowered in the bedroom came from? Was it because of certain things that happened to you when you were younger? Did you want to take back power? Uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, as you know, I had a very challenging childhood. I think that my my childhood actually drove me to, move, you know, press forward in the face of adversity. That was where that drive came from. But I think I was listening and hearing the feedback that I were getting from women at parties, you know, and it was changing their lives. It was changing their marriages. But you were abused as a child, is that right? I mean, in a sense, it's either you become a victim of that and the cycle is perpetuated or you break the cycle somehow. I would imagine in those days nobody discovered enough to give you the therapy you might have needed that today's children might oh my have a vocabulary I for. I mean, my goodness, I'm sure there are, you know, adults out there now still suffering. And, you know, uh, I remember, you know, I, I, I confided in my doctor and my doctor did nothing. I mean, can you imagine that today? I mean, that doctor today would be named and shamed publicly um, you know, for turning their back on a, on a uh, a fifteen year old that turned around and said, "I've been abused from the age of twelve. I mean, just imagine that. Anyhow, I'm not one to to dwell on on the negatives in my past. You know, I don't want to feel like a victim. I want to feel like somebody who's done something amazing. And you know, if that played a part in shaping who I am today, then then that's that's how it's happened. Well, I suppose it will give people listening a, a real sense of hope that rather than then having a messed up attitude to sex for the rest of their lives and not being able to see it in a healthy way, you can actually reclaim that part of your life. I, I absolutely agree, Nikki, which is why I went public with it many, many years ago, mm. because I felt that there, you know, obviously it's happened to men as well, but we, we know that there's more cases of it happening to women. Um, you know, I've gone from empowering women in the bedroom to now wanting to empower women in the boardroom. And just in business and in their careers. And I think that if they have suffered abuse in the past, you know, there is an opportunity to turn that round and say, well, yes, that did happen to me, but I'm going to prove them wrong. And, you know, I'm going to make something of my life and um, stand up for myself. And I think there's something, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to undermine how that feels because I know how it feels. But, you know, I think there absolutely is hope. You know, you can... And, and I've, that's not the only thing that's happened to me, by the way. I lost my son at eight months old. Um, you know, I've had some very, very difficult challenges to overcome in my life. Um, what do you think helps you get um, over? I think, well, first of all, having a daughter, you know, I want to be the best role model I possibly can be for my daughter. I want her to grow up. You know, I took her with me to when I received my CBE because... I wanted to see her to see mummy receiving that award and thinking that could be me one day. When she was five years old, I took her to one of my, I do a lot of public speaking and uh, usually they're full of, unfortunately, business men, but mm. obviously there would be women there as well. But I wanted her to see mummy up on stage and think, yes, this isn't just something that men do. And yeah, I guess that's what drives me. And I think just that determination, I'm not going to let what's happened to me overwhelm me and beat me indomitable spirit and i think you're a taboo smasher aren't you i think you've done that all along <laughs> you're listening to the boom podcast from virgin media business with me nikki Beatty, and Anne summer's ceo jacqueline gold in conversation we've more with jacqueline coming up but time now for a reminder that boom 2017 that's the uk's biggest and most valuable pitch competition run by Virgin Media Business, is looming just a few months away. In anticipation, we recently caught up with the 2016 winner, Toby McCartney, to hear how his business, McReba, is getting on since their success.
So I've had my own business, uh, well, since I was six years old actually, not this particular business, but lots of different businesses. Um, I did try working in the job once, but I only managed to keep that for about a year. Uh, but when I was uh, six to, well, six to nine years old, I was suspended from school twice for selling sweets and putting the school tuck shop out of business. So Macriba came about when I was working um, in India, actually, and I was helping a group of pickers. A picker's someone that's given a long stick, and on the end of that stick there's a spike, and they were sent out to landfill sites and collecting different products, different things that had been chucked away by, by tourists. And um, one of the things that they were picking out was things like plastics, you know, bottles and bags and, and just waste products. But they were melting them down and then sticking them into potholes, so that got me thinking, and well, Macriba, the, the business back then, was literally to stick waste into the pothole problem that we've got in our local area in Dumfrieshire. Uh, the council didn't like that so much, so we had to come up with a better solution. And we found that uh, we, we found a special mix by mixing waste plastics and our special mix. We, we mix that and replace part of the bitumen in an asphalt mix to produce up to a 60% stronger, longer-lasting road that costs less because, of course, we're using the waste that nobody else has a use for. It was actually a friend of mine who recommended me to enter Voom. I'm so glad that I did. It was, it was really the most intense but exhilarating experience, and I had no idea that I would win, um, but I'm so glad that I entered. And like most challenges, you know, it's, um, they're, they're bound to be a little bit scary I choked a few times during my pitches, but if you have a great idea and that idea makes a difference, then you've got to go for it. Our business has grown massively since Voom. We have councils on board, we've got roads down uh, all over the country. Our waste plastic tonnage is mounting up and that's, that's what we want to do. We want to look back in, in three to five years and say that's how much waste that we've been able to use. And and we're using a lot of it now, so it's uh, it's fantastic. We've even got investment through the door. Um, since Voom, I guess we've gone from the concept of a business to a proper business, and it's so exciting. And we're enjoying the journey so far. Toby McCartney, co-founder of McGreba and winner of the startup category in this year's Voom competition. What a fantastic business and great to see a winner who's taking on environmental challenges. Jacqueline, have you ever actually had to pitch for investment? And I ask this because the Voom competition itself is all about pitching. Um, when you've got a business like Ann Summers, I'd imagine if it's intimate products, Pitching could be quite elaborate, quite interesting, couldn't it? Or have you never had to pitch? Well, obviously, pitching at that board meeting for yes. the investment was my first experience. Yes, but women don't like sex, so that was yeah. shot down. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I've, I've done pitching, but not for investment other mm. than that first time. Any advice about pitching? Well, yes, because I have been on the receiving end. And um, I think the thing is, um, funny enough, I did the auditions for... Um, Dragon's Den. In fact, I was very, very close to going on to Dragon's Den. And I think that what investors look for, essentially, it's about the person. So I think the first thing is, you know, when you watch Dragon's Den, you can see that they do gravitate to people that make sense, that mm. are engaging, that they feel they can work with. That's very important. I think the second thing is that your idea has got to be different. And I know I keep saying that, but it really does have to be different um, because that's the world that we live in. I think thirdly, it's got to be scalable. And so when I think of, for example, I run a competition on a Wednesday, every Wednesday called WOW, where women tweet me their business. It's called Women on Wednesday, stands for Women on Wednesday, and they tweet me their business in 142 characters. And then I choose the best three. And there are some amazing businesses. So what I'm really looking for is something that's special, that stands out that's scalable, that's got a really good website because shop window, whether it be the website or the actual shop window, is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And I've um, recognised some amazing businesses and then I've gone on to mentor these women. I hold mentoring days, uh, lunches and also learning days where they come down to our head office and then we've held various different events. So those are the key things that I will always look for. So that's what I would be suggesting if somebody was pitching for investment. 
So what did that trilogy of books, Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> what did that do in terms of affecting your sales? Because I would assume that people went rushing to your stores online or on the actual high street physically to buy, whether it was handcuffs, whatever Christian was doing. Well, yes. Did it help? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and, and thanks to Anastasia, we completely sold out of jiggle balls, handcuffs and blindfolds within a very short space of time. Um, well, of course, you know, there are always going to be phenomenons. And this particular book, you know, outsold Harry Potter. I mean, millions and millions of copies sold worldwide. And because of social media it enabled us to get involved in that conversation not talking at our customers, which I think a lot of brands sometimes make the mistake of doing, but getting involved with what they were talking about and having something to add to that conversation. And so every time Fifty Shades were talked about in the media, which was pretty much every day in every national newspaper, Anne Summers was mentioned as well. So I think whatever your business, I think looking for those opportunities, and they do come along from time to time, whether it be, you know, take the Pokemon craze is there something that you was there a poke no actually (laughs) there should have been shouldn't there (laughs) but but you know it's looking at what those crazes are and whether you can add something to that conversation is there something about your business that you can tag on to here but bear in mind that you know that 50 shades was brilliant for us but it isn't forever Mm. so you have to really have a really strong robust marketing campaign to support what you're doing to go alongside it Um, And if you're a business like ours who don't, you know, we don't traditionally invest loads and loads of money in above the line advertising because, you know, we grew from a turnover of 83,000. So we've built our brand recognition Mm. on clever PR. So I think it's about maximising it, knowing it's not going to be forever and then looking out for the next opportunity that and, you know, and it did. It created a whole new market for Ann Summers. You know, we we suddenly had people coming into our store that had never been into our store before. Can you imagine any of the women that you mentor now, any of the younger business people, people going in for the first time, having to get a bullet in the post? Can you imagine any any other business that might elicit that response? You want to tell us about the bullet, by the yeah, way? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? You couldn't make this one up. I I basically wanted to open a store in Dublin. Our sales in Party Plan were much higher, actually, than in the UK in Ireland Mm. so it made sense that a store would go down very well so we found a location on O'Connell Street and when the Dublin Corporation they were called then but the equivalent of our council got wind of what we were doing they immediately were writing me letters on the phone don't open this store we'll move you to some lovely back street location (laughs) well actually this isn't what I want to achieve but Um, In the end, I said, look, come over and meet us. Come and see our stores, you know, see what we're about. So they came over and I gave them a tour of our stores. And in the afternoon, we met in the boardroom. But, you know, it wasn't long before I realised they had an agenda. They were told that in no uncertain terms they were to come back and having convinced me to choose a different location to O'Connell Street, which is where they were planning to, you know, completely overhaul, which was part of our reason for wanting to go there. Um, and he's, it was Alan and Kieran, and Kieran's parting words when he left my boardroom to go back to Dublin was, look, if you go ahead and open that store, I cannot help be held responsible for what might happen to you. Now, that's absolutely true verbatim what he said. Now, I'm not claiming that he was responsible in any way, shape or form, but... A week before we were due to open, I received a bullet through the post. And I'm sure you will forgive me for thinking, my God, am I doing the right thing here? Do I go ahead with this? But, you know, I knew it was the right thing. Absolutely, I was going to go ahead and open that store. Did the bullet come with a specific message? Yes, it did. And I can't. I know you're going to ask me what the message was. No, no, no. I but just, I can't remember. But you knew that it was to do with that store and nothing else. Oh that yes, was going it was. On in your it life. was very threatening. Yeah, it was very threatening. Oh, just a bit. So at that point, Jacqueline, what do you do? Have you got people who advise you legally, security-wise? This is personal to you as well. Well, not then because it was 1999 and we were a small business. I went over to Dublin. I took a security man with me. I, I, engaged with a security guard that met me at the airport. That was sort of my way of dealing with it. 
I was then invited onto the Late Late Show, which is a a big show, I believe, in Ireland that has a, a oh, quite, it still is oh, huge. it still is. Yes. So it had quite or has quite a cult following. Mm. And there'd been so much negative publicity and they invited me on the show. I'd never done any media at all and I was terrified of going on, but I felt that I needed to go on to have an opportunity to diffuse the situation and put across what what we really were trying to do. And I remember sitting in the green room and actually Michael Crawford was on before me and the audience were laughing at all these jokes and I'm thinking, (laughs) oh my God, how am I going to follow this? But anyway, as soon as I walked out, of course, it all turned very serious and you, I remember sitting down at a desk and it, it might have been Patrick Kilty. I sort well, of he's think. done it for a number of years. Oh, so yeah. it would have been him. Yeah. So he was. He sat there and um, interviewed me and it was a live audience. And when I sat down, I remember looking into the audience and who was sitting at the front of the stage? Kieran. Kieran. <gasps> Absolutely. Oh, no. And his colleague, Alan. And he started off, he stood up in the audience... Tell, it's telling everybody why we shouldn't be there and how disgraceful it is and disgusting it would be. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I never knew this was going to happen. I've been set up is how I felt at the time. And he was sort of beating his chest, you know, like a, you know, I'm thinking he's a, virtually a politician, you know, he's used to this. Anyway, I then stood up and just told my story, mm. um, pretty much how I, I have done today. And saying that, you know, women don't want to go to back streets. They want to be able to, you know, spice up their marriages and feel empowered without, you know, feeling uncomfortable. And when I'd finished, it was incredible, Nikki, because the uh, I, the first woman to stand up was at the back of the room. She stood up. She's pointing down at Kieran at the bottom of the stage because it was sort of on a, a tier and saying, how dare you tell us where we can and can't shop? You know, we want to be empowered too. And it was like... I mean, I was, oh, my God, you know, it was just fantastic to hear the women of of Dublin. Yeah, feel this way. And despite us being, um, we were issued a writ by the the corporation on the first day of opening. And despite that writ, we had 10,000 people through the door. Whoa. We did go to court and we won the case. We got our £20,000 costs back. But more important than that, out of our 140 stores, Dublin is not only in the top three performing stores in our portfolio, but it's also on the tourist bus route. Ah, So I think that's well and truly a victory. (laughs) Victory indeed. What sort of tips would you give a female entrepreneur right now in 2016? Well, you know, unfortunately, it is still difficult for women, whether it be, you know, climbing the ladder in their company that they work for if they've got ambitions of being on a board it's difficult for women in business and you know I I think it's sad that when I started out in business that you know there was only a few women I think it was Anita Roddick myself Debbie Moore from Pineapple Studios if you remember that yeah and here we are still having that sort of conversation which is were they your role models then I mean I I took my inspiration and always have done from so many sources. I, you know, my father was a great role model to me. But was there my a customers? Woman? But there were only those were the only two women. Well, they weren't your role models. They were your contemporaries. So you actually, your groundbreakers. Mm, absolutely. And to think I can only name three, three, but I'm sure there were probably more, maybe a few more. But um, and of course we do have some, you know, great women in business today and and, and running their own businesses. You know the. The two women that run not on the high com has been a great success. White Company is a great success. So there are, but I think there still aren't enough women raising their head above the parapet, getting the support that they need at home, getting the support that they need, you know, from financiers and even the whole social conditioning. And, you know, I think there is still a perception that only men would go into business you know, I, I, I remember when I started out in business and, of course, you know, my father um, had those first two stores. You know, there's still sometimes that perception that if you're successful, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Whereas if you're a man, or you followed in your father's footsteps. So there's a, a totally, you know, there is still that perception. And we need men to be agents of change as well as this isn't just, and, and I, st- I can't stress this is enough. This isn't just a female issue. This is an everyone issue. You know, we need equality, whether it be in business or in the workplace, and we need men to be agents of change too. 
So if you were to give someone a piece of advice, being a woman in the workplace, would it be keep asking for more? Would it be fight your way through? What what sort of things can we arm ourselves with to do oh, better? There, there are so many things. I think, first of all, you know, you've got to join networking groups because it's empowering to mm. see other women and, you know, see women on stage talk about their success, not just people that are turning over 150 million like me, but your, you know, other women that are on their way up and seeing what the hurdles that they face and how they've overcome them. I think that's really, really powerful. And there are many, many organisations now and you'd start following them on Twitter, on social media and go to their events. I think you have to, for example, if you're in the workplace and you're going to the boardroom and many women ask me about this, there's a couple of tips I want to give here. First of all, it's about not thinking I'm a woman. It's about going into that boardroom and having something to contribute. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. You know, I only recruit or promote the best people for the job. And it's got you women have to stop putting themselves down. And women are so used to underselling themselves where men, you know, tend to do the reverse in many cases. But women have got to stop doing that because in fairness to a, a male CEO, what is he hearing? He's hearing all the reasons why you can't fulfill that role. So mm. you've got to stop doing that. You've got to support other women. I think that's very important, particularly when you're in an environment that perhaps isn't as it should be in embracing uh, equality and, and fair opportunity in the workplace. So I think you need to help change that culture. And you can only do that by supporting your female colleagues. What else? I'm, well, those, I, are, those are fantastic. Those are fantastic tips in advance. You talk about your £150 million business. You have done so incredibly well. You are pretty tireless from what I see in terms of how you fill your days, even your weekends. Is the work-life balance something that you struggle with or have you got very firm rules in place and schedules in place that allow you to create that equilibrium? It's really tough, particularly if you're a mum. And, of course, we know that women generally shoulder the majority of sort of domestic responsibility Certainly, that's my my experience anyway. Um, so, yes, it, it is difficult. And I think the way I achieve it, I think it's about, A, being super organised. You know, everything I have scheduled down to a T. I think it's about planning wisely because I want to experience everything I possibly can with my daughter and I want her to have the best childhood that she can have. So, you know, if I've got emails to do or jobs to do, I'll do it when she's in bed or, or whatever. So you do work extra hard. I remember Karen Brady, who I'm, I'm close friends with, actually turning around to me and saying, I'm tired of being tired. Yeah. You know, I'm sure every woman out there can resonate with that. And I think that it's about having a really good support network around you. So for me, you know, I have the most wonderful PA, executive PA that works with me, that's worked with me for eight years. I mean, she really is a superwoman and we refer to each other as work wives because we spend so much time together. But it really is about the people you can. You're only as good as the people that support you, frankly. And in terms of looking after yourself, I mean, you look extraordinarily glamorous, beautiful, healthy, glowing. You look full of energy. Do you do things for yourself too? Do you do hot yoga or something? Do you, um, do you have green juices every morning? <laughs> I do have lots of energy because I think that's, I enjoy life and I enjoy the opportunities. You know, I just wake up in the morning thinking you never know what's going to happen today. Mm. You never know who you're going to meet. And, and just to, that reminds me of that other tip I wanted to give is that women tend to feel uncomfortable networking. But every time you walk into a room full of strangers, you have an opportunity to change your life. And I, you just have to remember that. And if you walk into that room and you're on your own, go and find somebody else who's on their own because they're probably feeling like you. So, that, you know, everything... You can remove those barriers. Believe me, you can. Um, so for me, from the, my whole energy thing, um, I work out on a Monday. I have a personal trainer on a Monday, every Monday between 7 and 8. Um, and I do yoga on a Friday morning. Is that it? And uh, <laughs> I, I, I sort of drag myself into the gym on a Wednesday, but I, that's sort of self-motivated. Um, but that's good. You do set and, aside time for yeah, yourself. Yeah, and you know, I think it's the other changes that you make in life. It's, uh, you know, I... Years and years ago, I used to come up to London, I have a driver and I do my work in the car. Mm. And then I suddenly realised I wasn't moving. So I carry my flat shoes around in my bag everywhere I go. I come up to London, I come up by train, I jump on the tube. I don't care 
you know, how far it is. I think it's important that you do things that give you headspace, that you know, give you the chance to move. I, I think it's very easy to neglect your well-being, and that's something I try not to do. I would imagine that anybody looking at what you've done in your career so far, in your business life so far, would single out the two big things. One, you've changed a whole business model around. And two, you have completely changed people's attitudes. Can you think of what makes you most proud? Um, I'm very proud of both of those things. I'm obviously incredibly proud of my CBE, mainly because if you know the reasons I was given it was because of entrepreneurship, supporting women in business, and I, I'm still on that journey really because I still think there's so much more to do to support women in the workplace and in business, and I, I'm, I'm hoping that I can look back in another five or ten years time and say yes, and I was responsible for that, you know, and. and um, I think empowering women in the bedroom, you know, liberating women between the sheets, all of those things, I think. And, and just, in, you know, the amount of women that say your story has really inspired me. For every woman that says that to me, you know, is a fantastic feeling that I've been able to do that. Mission accomplished in a sense. Finally, what do you see next in the industry that you work in? We see the phrase sex tech being used in terms of products that can connect to our devices. Um, so the Internet of sex things, I suppose. What's next there? Or can you not possibly say, well, you have to kill me? <laughs> <laughs> I'd never do that. <laughs> um well, we are in a very fast-paced world. The last 10 years and the whole digital opportunity, you know, you can, I think, have something delivered the same, you know, within an hour to Madison Square Gardens. You know, it's just incredible yeah. what can be done digitally. And that, you know, the moment I say something, it will have changed probably in an hour's time and we'll be moving on to the next thing. Um, but anything that is engaging with the customer, whether that be you know, through their devices. I mean, everything is around the digital phone, the tablet, you know, everything is being fed into that right now. And I, I always say any business that are, is under-investing in digital or social media, you know, do so at your peril because because of the pace it's moving. And you've just mentioned there the, the whole interactive opportunity. Of course, that's, you know, it's going to be explosive at some point. So were you um, working with any sort of like VR, virtual reality, anything like that for we, your products? You might, might be. be. <laughs> I knew she'd say that. I knew she'd say that. Because I see that as a really interesting frontier for humankind. Yeah. I really do. Yes, it certainly is. Jacqueline Gold, thank you so very much. Thank you. Thanks again to my guest Jacqueline Gold, CEO of Anne Summers. The Voom podcast is a Pixu production for Virgin Media Business. I'll be back in two weeks, but just enough time to say that if you want to hear more stories and business advice, check out the all-new Virgin Disruptors podcast, a series of talks about creating change in areas ranging from purpose, performance, people and planet. Just search Virgin Disruptors on iTunes or head over to virgin.com. But for now, from me, Nikki Beatty, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.